Hey everybody, it's Tim here, Horror Movie Yearbook. The honor roll. You know how we do things here, maybe, if this is your first time listening, maybe you don't. Basically, what I do is I take a look at a handful of movies, five, that's a handful for most people, um, take a look at five movies and I go through them, I review them, I talk about them a little bit, and I pick out which ones I'm going to put on my honor roll. And the honor roll is basically just a group of movies I really liked. It's just kind of a, um, a gimmicky fun way for me to kind of keep track of what I watched this year and what I liked. But also from that honor roll, at the end of the year, I am going to be picking out my top 10 movies of the year. And I, you know, I should really like post this list somewhere uh or i'm keeping track of it on my own in an excel file because i'm a huge nerd like that but i yeah tracking the movies i watch which ones i really like and at the end of the year from the honor roll i will create my top 10 i think i called it the tim's list kind of like the dean's list very clever i know so let's not waste any more time here Let's talk about Slumber Party Massacre. This is a feminist remake of the 1982 slasher film about sorority girls attacked by a maniac killer with a large electric drill. Directed by Danishka Esterhazy, written by Suzanne Kelly, starring Hannah Gonera, Francis Sholto Douglas, and Myla Rain. I am going to start this review off by saying that if you want to listen to Willie and I talk about one of the films in the Slumber Party Massacre franchise, we do have a very good Slumber Party Massacre 2 episode where we discuss that sequel as well as the franchise as a whole. I rewatched all three of the movies recently and I found it to be a very fun and silly franchise. The original movies were produced by Roger Corman and I am talking about the original Slumber Party Massacre series in particular here. I know there's also a Sorority House Massacre series and there's the Cheerleader Ma Massacre series. And while they share certain elements in common with the Slumber Party series, I'm mainly focused on the trilogy that ran from 1982 to 1990. Roger Corman, of course, is the Detroit-born director, producer, actor, who is one of the most prolific producers in the history of film, with hundreds of movies to his credit. Corman has been called the quote-unquote king of cult film, and he can take credit for giving the likes of James Cameron, Peter Bogdanovich, Ron Howard, Joe Dante, many more directors and actors, their starts in Hollywood. By 1982, Corman was pretty well established, and the Corman formula, which called for plenty of trailer-friendly sex and violence, was also set in place. It was during that year that Corman and his production company, New World Pictures, released the original Slumber Party Massacre movie, directed by Amy Holden Jones and written by Rita Mae Brown. Now, a couple of quick facts about the two main female creative forces behind that original film. Amy Holden Jones would go on to write Indecent Proposal, Beethoven, Mystic Pizza, and she also created the TV show The Resident, which is currently in its fourth season on Fox. Rita Mae Brown, the screenwriter, was actually a feminist novelist who was the partner of tennis legend Martina Navratilova for a while. Corman considered the Slumber Party Massacre series of movies to be his female franchise, and all three movies in the series were written and directed by women. Now that's great and all. But the original movie is an example of a movie that is at war with what it wants to say and how it is being made to say it. As I mentioned, by this point, the Corman formula was pretty well established. And let's not be cute here. The formula was centered around boobs and blood. And in 1982, we were still in that first big-time slasher cycle when the boobs and blood formula of the Corman flicks fit nicely with the dead teenager formula of the slasher movie. 
Even within those templates, though, you could still sneak in some more subversive elements. And some of the aforementioned Corman directors did that. And that was the original plan by Amy Holden Jones and Rena Mae Brown, whose original script aimed to take the misogyny of the slasher film to task. But what ended up on screen in the original Slumber Party Massacre ended up being a scaled back and more Corman-friendly version of the original script. Amy Holden Jones has talked about this in interviews and on the DVD commentary for the film as well. In the commentary for the first film, the scene that gets singled out is the shower scene. It's a scene, a shower scene, where the camera really lingers on a group of women while they take a shower. This type of scene was a requirement from Corman at the time, and even Jones admits that it comes off as a bit exploitative. The film is still able to work in a bit of commentary, though. I mean, the killer is a guy with a drill that hangs between his legs in certain shots. I mean, come on now. Some viewers have also picked up on some lesbian subtext in the movie revolving around two of the main characters. We'll come back to that in a little bit when we talk about the new movie. But as it is, the original Slumber Party Massacre is mostly a straightforward slasher movie with some fun sprinkles of depth. The sequel, on the other hand, is an insane fever dream of a movie that you also might be able to read a bit deeper into if you want, but honestly, it's better off to be enjoyed as a blissfully wacky slasher with a great villain and a couple of standout musical numbers. The third movie just kind of sucks. All that being said, the Slumber Party Massacre franchise really is the perfect franchise to play around with, as it has its strengths but it never really takes itself too seriously. And while it has its fans, I really don't think it's a fan base that takes these movies serious either. All of this brings us to the new Slumber Party Massacre movie that was just released on Sci-Fi and is also available on the Shout streaming service. The new Slumber Party Massacre keeps with the tradition of the original trilogy and is also written and directed by women. The movie is written by Suzanne Kelly, who also wrote the new and pretty fun Leprechaun movie, Leprechaun Returns. She also wrote an episode of Ash vs. Evil Dead. Slumber Party Massacre was directed by Danishka Esterhazy, who recently directed the Banana Splits movie, also a sci-fi movie, and she's directed a few episodes of Surreal Estate, a newer show on sci-fi. I'm going to start off my review proper by saying that this movie was one of the more pleasant surprises of the year for me. I'm not sure what expectations I had going in for a Slumber Party Massacre remake, reboot, legacy sequel, reimagining, whatever you want to call this, but if I did have expectations, they were surpassed. This movie is subversive, clever, and it deconstructs the original in a way that doesn't feel like you are sitting through a lecture or reading an essay about the movie that it is critiquing. In its own way, it feels like a realization of what Amy Holden Jones and Rita Mae Brown had planned for their original film. And it does so in a way that still delivers on what it is at its core, which is a slasher movie. Slumber Party Massacre is schlock, but it knows that and it embraces it. But it's also not dumb, and it's not trying to be a dumb, bad movie. This isn't Slumber NATO. We seem to be in the beginning of what is a bit of a slasher boom recently. Just this year alone, and I know some of this is because the pandemic pushed back the releases of a lot of these movies, but we've seen the releases of Candyman, the Fear Street Trilogy, Halloween Kills, The Wrong Turn Reimagining, There's Someone Inside Your House, I think the Terrifier sequel later this year, and then Scream in January, which is close enough. It's a good time to be a slasher fan, and I would put this movie and some of the kills in it, which let's not kid ourselves, those are what we are looking for in a slasher movie, up against any of those movies. Slumber Party Massacre is also well-paced and features a likable cast of characters, which are two things that can't always be said of slasher movies. Now, on the more negative side of things, this is a sci-fi original movie, and it looks like it. 
And maybe the acting isn't top tier, but if that's what you're looking for in a Slumber Party Massacre movie, maybe this isn't the franchise for you. Now, as I get into specifics of the movie, I have to start with the best scene in the movie, the guy slumber party. And I should emphasize the guy part of the slumber party because there are, in fact, two characters named Guy. Guy 1 and Guy 2. I always try to say somewhat spoiler-free, so without giving too much away, there are a group of women at a cabin for a specific reason. There's also a mirroring group of guys nearby at a house where the original killings in this movie took place. The men are all there because they are all fans of a podcast that covers those original murders, and they are staying there as a sort of party or a retreat. I'm bringing this slumber party scene up because it's the first time I have seen something like this in a movie. It's a straight up parody of every single girl's slumber party scene where they're all decked out in their underwear, or in some cases decked out in nothing at all, and having giggly pillow fights. This is just like that, but with a group of shirtless, meat-headed guys snapping each other with towels. It's very funny, and it flips that male gaze that we normally see in these movies into a female gaze. There is one shot in particular during it, too, and it's a shot that any guy who has watched a horror movie or even a movie probably is aware of. And it's the shot of a woman walking away from the camera with the camera pointed directly at the woman's backside. This movie does that same thing a couple of times, but with a male backside. It's really funny. It's great. Everyone everyone likes butts. The only problem I have with the group of guys in the movies they're so funny and they're so irreverent and fresh i kind of wanted to see more of them also as i mentioned earlier there's a reading of the original that focuses on a couple of characters trish and valerie in that movie being in a relationship there is also a moment in this new movie between two characters that takes that subtext from the original and makes it explicit This moment doesn't really lead anywhere beyond a few seconds, and I do wish that the movie would have just gone all in and maybe given them a scene or two before this moment, but it also fits alongside nicely with those nods to the original, and it feels like this movie kind of talking to the original movie and saying, hey, we can do this now. You couldn't back then, but it's okay now, and maybe some of that is because of the movie you made. The director, Danishka Esterhazy, touched on this idea in an interview with Sci-Fi Wire, saying of Amy Holden Jones, she accepted that restriction and she delivered it and she did what she could on the movie. She also had some anger that people would judge her and criticize her for, for delivering that female nudity when it was the only way she was able to get her foot in the door as a director. She said that a lot of male directors in that period did exploitation films and that no one's ever criticized them for it. It's just a stepping stone in their career. In some ways, I feel so grateful that I didn't have to face those same challenges. There are also a couple of other fun nods here to the original movie sprinkled throughout the film, as well as a heartwarming shout out to Atanas Illich and his weapon in part two. I think that's what I liked most about the new Slumber Party Massacre movie. It's very comfortable in its own skin. And it's comfortable criticizing the original while also respecting it. It's empathetic criticism, and I dig that about that. And maybe we can all learn something from the Slumber Party Massacre franchise. I think that's what I'm trying to say most here. This movie is absolutely on the honor roll. I really like this flick, and it's one of the biggest surprises of the year for me. All right, let's talk about Ben Wheatley's In the Earth. As the world searches for a cure to a disastrous virus, a scientist and a park scout venture deep in the forest for a routine equipment run. It's not so routine. I have you know IMDb. 
directed by Ben Wheatley, written by Ben Wheatley, starring Joel Fry, Reese Shearsmith, and Haley Squires. In the Earth was actually written last year during lockdown, I think in March is what Ben Wheatley has said. Uh, He wrote wrote it over the course of 15 days in August of 2020. The film itself takes place in the middle of an unspecified pandemic that has brought the world to a standstill. So I think the parallels are pretty obvious. Uh, Wheatley himself has even said that the process of writing and directing a film was really just a way to attempt to try and hold on to some semblance of sanity during those early days of lockdown. He told Bad Feeling Magazine, not a magazine I'm familiar with, but now I am, in an interview, it was this weird feeling that everyone must have had, or like going at 100 miles per hour and then one day just no miles an hour. You know, like having your purpose kind of taken away for a bit and just a time to reflect and kind of try to understand what had been happening over the last few years. And I think I think a lot of people can relate to that feeling. In the Earth definitely demonstrates that feeling, that quote that Wheatley talks about in the interview, as it follows a small group of characters as they try to find their place in the world. And also as they try to find meaning in the world and a time where if they are truthful with themselves or maybe they they feel a certain way, maybe there is no meaning in what they're doing at all. It's that idea that just might be that that idea might be the most terrifying aspect of this movie, honestly. There is a moment near the end of the movie where one of the characters says of a fellow character, he is trying to make sense where there isn't any. It's a psychological problem with humans trying to make sense of things with stories. So as you can see, that ties into a little of what Wheatley was talking about there. But also, this is something that could be seen throughout the pandemic with people trying to make sense of things or how something like that pandemic could spiral out of control and trying to find some meaning or lesson to be learned in the whole thing when deep down it's entirely possible that there is no meaning or lesson to be learned. I swear I'm pretty positive this morning. I just, uh, I've had my coffee. I don't know what's going on here. The human need for narrative is also something that is showcased in the film in a couple of different ways. But the one that stood out for me is the legend of the Parnag Fag. The Parnag Fag is actually a creation of Wheatley's for the film. It's a local legend. It's a spirit in the woods where our main characters find themselves. The tale of the Parnag Fag is presented in the film as originally invented as a way to keep kids from straying too far from the woods. It's kind of kind of like a um, Hansel and Gretel type story. The Parnag Fag, it's also a way to give something ethereal and otherworldly, in this case, the forest, a tangible appearance to us so that we can understand it. And that's something that's true of a lot of folklore. So much of folklore centers around a period of time where there's no real written history. And woodland folklore and the existence of supernatural fairy-like beings, that was a common belief before the Age of Enlightenment. Folklore was also a way to make sense of the world before science and reason. Now we've entered kind of a post-enlightenment age where we are able to explain some of the world around us, but we may not like or be ready for the answers. And that's one of the things that In the Earth dives into big time. Also big during the pandemic, in addition to some of the stuff I've talked about, uh, death. Well, death in the meaning of life and what happens when you die. Sometimes when you don't have a lot to do, 
like when you're sitting around your house during a pandemic, maybe writing a movie, your mind tends to wander and it wanders to some of life's bigger and unanswerable questions. Mine does. That's why I put an end to it real quick and just start messing around on my phone all the time when these thoughts creep in. Uh, one of the biggest horror streaming shows in 2021 was Midnight Mass by Mike Flanagan, which also deals with kind of trying to answer the unanswerable, these the characters in it do. But also, toward the beginning of the year, there was a multi-part do- documentary called Surviving Death, which focused on near-death experiences and beliefs in the afterlife. Mushrooms, mushrooms, psychedelic ones, magic mushrooms, if you will. They've also been hot recently. People love them. Psychedelic experiences using mushrooms have shown in studies to give subjects a feeling of calm or like they are being shown a preview of what happens after a person dies. They can give people a feeling that death isn't the end, but it's part of a process. There's also a timelessness quality to tripping balls that provide some peace for people. In the Earth touches on this as well in its own way, and it does so by focusing on the effects that psychedelics, mushrooms in particular, can have in coping with kind of the finality of death existence. The characters in the film are surrounded by a thick mist of fungal spores, and they also consume what is referred to as a sacrament, which is a mixture of ground mushrooms that cause them to hallucinate and breaks down their sense of self to become one with the nature surrounding them. They're very high in this movie. In the case of In the Earth, it causes them to see things beyond the veil. Some characters handle that better than others. Towards the end, though, a character says, let me guide you out of to the woods to another character in the movie. And it becomes more of a calm statement about what we, how we need to continue to trudge on and move forward in the face of overwhelming death. And it's, it's tripping balls that kind of provides her with that piece. That's uh, that idea that feeling to trudge on and move forward. That's kind of the curse of humanity in a way, but it's also kind of the beauty of humanity as well. In the Earth isn't so much a return to form for Ben Wheatley, but a return to his roots. That's kind of a bad pun. I'm sorry. Uh, In various interviews, he has called the movie a conversation between two of his films, Kill List and A Field in England. Like those two movies, In the Earth delves into folk horror and psychedelia to explain the times we live in. But this one also goes a step further and it attempts to answer the big questions that have always been with us and have been brought even more to the forefront in the last couple years. It also comes to the conclusion that we don't have all of the answers and maybe that's how it's meant to be. I do have In the Earth also on the honor roll. It's a movie that has grown on me the more I sit with it and think about it and chew on it. And I think it's a fine return to full horror from a director who is kind of becoming a modern master of that subgenre. All right, let's do a quick one here. Let's do the Mad Hatter. Henry and three of his classmates encounter mind-bending ghostly terror when they volunteer for a weekend study with their psychology professor in the haunted Mad Hatter mansion. Not a not a mansion I would visit. Directed by Kate Devaney, written by R.V. Romero and Kate Devaney, starring Armando Gutierrez, Nick Miller, and Samuel Caleb Walker. Not going to be a very long review here. I want to touch on a couple of things, though. First off, I like to give advice to aspiring filmmakers here on the show. I'm hoping to help. That's what I do. So if you're an aspiring filmmaker, please write this piece of advice down. Never start your movie with an orgy. This should be rule number one in film school. There's nowhere to go but down from an orgy. Pun intended. The orgy scene in your movie needs to come at the climax of the film. That's two pun intended there. The Mad Hatter starts 
the movie with an orgy scene and it never recovers. I think that's another pun. Follow the example of Blair Witch 2 is what I'm saying and have an orgy later in the movie. I really think that is good advice as well. So write it down. Always follow the example of Blair Witch 2 Book of Shadows. And I'll, I'll wait now for everybody to write down this advice. Another thing that I have to talk about here, and this is personal, I am terrible at judging a book by its cover. Here's my problem. I think certain things look cool as hell, even though I know better. So I'm swimming through the depths of the Amazon Prime waters, and I see the box art, the box art for the Mad Hatter. And I'm so old that I'm referring to it as box art. I think it's, it's probably just poster now or streaming art, maybe. But the box art for the Mad Hatter, he's got a big top hat, and he's got fire and embers surrounding him, and he's got his name in that cool horror font, and I'm in the mood for a slasher. So I just hit play. No questions asked. No further research necessary. No looking at the description. No looking at the IMDb score of 2.8. I'm just diving right in. This wasn't the best choice, not like quality of movie-wise, but because the Mad Hatter isn't really a slasher. It looks like it from the picture, but that's what I mean. I'm really bad at judging a book by its cover. It's more of just a supernatural movie with a bunch of dream sequences kind of strung together. But I'm an old-school video store nerd, so I sometimes like to pick stuff based on box art. Third thing I want to talk about here, Amazon Prime's horror selection is wild as hell, and it gets wilder the more you get into it. It's got some really good stuff. There's some A24 stuff, and it also has a ton of stuff that is either on Tubi or will be on Tubi in a few months. I'm talking, I'm talking about movies like Sharks and Sharks of the Corn. There's this movie called Medusa, which looks to be a killer Medusa. Uh, Troll, of course, is on there. Zombie strippers, Llamageddon, wild stuff here. There is a movie called Reelected from 2020 last year that is about zombie versions of old U.S. presidents killing people that I need to watch. It's a 2020 movie, so it's not going to make this year's honor roll, though. Anyway, The Mad Hatter, not my favorite. Not going to dump on it too much here. The people that made it made a movie and I watched it. So good for them. It's really just a, it's more a collection of nightmare and dream suite sequences spread out across an hour and a half. It's, it's not for me. The Mad Hatter is not on the honor roll. All right, let's do the unholy next. A hearing impaired girl is visited by the Virgin Mary and can suddenly hear, speak, and heal the sick. That's good. As people flock to witness her miracles, terrifying events unfold. Are they the work of the Virgin Mary or something much more sinister? What's... It's not more sinister than the Virgin Mary. Come on now, Evan, director Evan Spiliotopoulos, written by Evan Spiliotopoulos, also written by James Herbert, who I'll talk about here in a second, starring Jeffrey Dean Morgan, Cricket Brown, and old Bill Sadler. The Unholy is actually based on a novel by James Herbert. Herbert wrote 23 novels over the course of his career, and he was one of the more popular novelists in the UK, known for his horror work mainly with books like the Rats, The Fog, which is no relation to the Carper, Carpenter movie, The Survivor. Stephen King called him a Mike Tyson-esque writer, saying he had no finesse but was all crude power. Five of his books have been made into movies. The Rats, The Survivor, Fluke, Haunted, and now The Shrine, which is now The Unholy, made by Ghost House Pictures. Ghost House Pictures, of course, is the production company that was founded around 20 years ago by Rob Tapper and Sam Raimi of Evil Dead fame, of course. They've produced movies like The Grudge Remake, its sequel, The Evil Dead Remake Reboot, Don't Breathe, 
uh, the Boogeyman movies, a lot of supernatural movies in there, including one called The Possession, which I actually kind of liked a few years back that also starred Jeffrey Dean Morgan. The Possession is also religious horror, Jewish religious horror at that. It's about a dibbit box. Love good dibbit box horror, and we don't get enough. So please make more dibbit box movies. If you have any suggestions that I maybe missed, please let me know. Anyway, this is Jeffrey Dean's second ghost house joint, and it's the worst of the two. But he's working with a pretty good cast around him. There are a lot of actors here that genre fans will recognize. Bill Sadler, of course, Carrie Elwes. Everyone is doing pretty good work. Carrie Elwes is doing next level work here, but we'll get to that a little bit later. This is a religious horror movie, which is something we've had quite a a bit of in the wake of, of course, Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist and kind of stemming from those. But we've seen quite a few of them in recent years as well with The Conjuring movies, The Witch, Deliver Us from Evil, Apostle, St. Maud. Earlier this year, there are a ton more, and I got to thinking about why that might be, and I think it maybe has something to do with studios being more comfortable digging into explicit religious ideas due to us living in the times we live in a little bit more secular, and treating some of this stuff as more myth than lore. They also know that they can make money by scaring people using their beliefs, and I, I do think most... If not all, believe me, not all people are a little bit more playful with their beliefs than they have been in the past. And I'm talking about humanity as a whole. So uh, some people, of course, are not, which did lead to a bit of a backlash from Catholics, some Catholics, to this movie, to to how it portrays the Mother Mary. Uh, I was raised Catholic. I didn't have a problem with it, but I also wasn't very engaged during this movie, to be quite honest. So maybe if I paid more attention, I'd be all outraged. There is one modern religious horror movie that this reminded me of in some thematic ways. And funny enough, it's a ghost house picture and it's Drag Me to Drag Me to Hell, directed by Sam Raimi. Both movies feature lead characters taking advantage of other people in an attempt to further their own careers. Of course, in Drag Me to Hell, Christine denies a bank loan to an elderly gypsy witch. Always a mistake, by the way. Don't do that. In order to demonstrate to her boss that she has what it takes to get a promotion. The Unholy follows, follows Jeffrey D. Morgan's character as he tries to rebuild his career after it fell apart when it was revealed that he was fabricating stories. And now he's trying to sell this story because he knows all the Catholic rubes out there, in his opinion, will eat it up. Whereas Drag Me to Hell goes straight up Old Testament mixed with Creepshow and punishes its antagonist, The Unholy has kind of a softer touch, and it's more on the redemption of Jeffrey Dean Morgan as it goes along. Most of The Unholy is pretty lifeless overall, especially when compared to better movies of its subgenre like Drag Me to Hell. There are some interesting ideas at play. I can see how this may have worked better as kind of a pulpy supernatural novel, so I can see why it has its fans. But mostly The Unholy is just kind of a time waster at best. The type of movie you throw on while you fold laundry or catch up on chores or do work or whatever. And it never really grabs your attention, but it also never offends you in any way. It's, it's fine. There is one element, though, that I have to talk about. It is an, uh, it's an element of the unholy that demands your attention. And I'm going to try to do I'm just going to play this off my phone. I think I'm going to attempt to do this here. That is Carrie Elwes' performance as Bishop Giles. The unholy takes place in Boston or near Boston. And so, of course, that is the accent that Mr. Ellis is trying to attempt. And and listen, I'm not a master of accents or anything, but I think most people are familiar with or can do some sort of impression, an impression of a Boston accent. I don't know how hard it is to do, honestly. I'm not I'm not an expert. I, I know you have to drop the R's. You have to replace the O's with, with an A. So, like, hockey is hockey 
for example. Uh, I'm sure Mr. Ellis, it, I'm sure for Mr. Ellis, it might be even more difficult because he's British. So he has that British accent on top of things. But this accent is crazy. It's like, it's like a British accent mixed with a Jersey accent mixed with hints of a Boston accent. He, I think he throws a little Italian in there as well. I don't know. Maybe that's the Catholic side of things. I don't know. Maybe it's on purpose, but it's awesome. It's all inspiring. Elvis has had issues with accents before. I think his saw accent is nuts too, if I recall, rec- if I recall correctly. I recorded a scene. I sent it to Willie. I'm going to try to bring it right now, up right now because I was blown away by this. I give myself entirely to you and to show my devotion to you. I consecrate to you this day my eyes, my ears, my mouth, my heart, my whole being without reserve. My eyes, my ears, my heart. A Carrie Elwes accent is on the honor roll. The unholy is not. It's not bad by any means. It's okay for an after watch, but it's probably best to have, to be occupied while doing so. All right, let's wrap this bad boy up here. Paranormal activity next of kin. And I apologize. I struggle with saying the word paranormal. I think there are too many R's in it for me. Margot, a young woman who was abandoned by her mother as a baby, travels to a secluded Amish community with a documentary film crew seeking answers about her mother and extended family. I'm just going to, I laugh because it says documentary film crew. This is a full on movie crew. Uh, This is not a documentary film crew. There's stuff, there are shots in this movie that there are, I've never seen in a found footage movie. There are shots in this movie I've never seen in like an IMAX movie directed by William Eubank written by Christopher Landon uh, based on characters created by Oren Pelly starring Emily Bader Roland Buck III and Dan Lippert so way back in the early to mid aughts Miramax Films owned the rights to the Hellraiser franchise starting in the year 2000 in the year 2000 and for the next few movies after the Weinsteins kept that franchise humming along and cranking out more self-contained direct-to-video flicks by taking existing spec scripts and mashing them up with Hellraiser. For example, Hellraiser Inferno, which was the fifth movie in the franchise, it wasn't actually written to be a Hellraiser sequel. Miramax, in an attempt to save money on starting a new script from scratch, commissioned an existing script by Paul Harris Boardman and Scott Derrickson that had absolutely nothing to do with Pinhead, the Cenobites, the entire Hellraiser universe, and then they had them rewrite it to connect it to the rest of the series. This would be the template for the Hellraiser series for the next couple of movies, and it was a way for the Weinsteins to take an existing IP that still had some value in it and produce cheap direct-to-video movies in that universe, knowing that fans and curious people, people like myself, uh, with knowledge of Hellraiser would probably watch them. Now, we're in the streaming era, and while DTV movies, direct-to-video movies still exist, We are also entering the direct-to-streaming age, which leads me to Paranormal Activity Next of Kin. This is the first non-theatrical Paranormal Activity film, and it was recently released on the streaming service Paramount+. Plus. I am curious to see if this is something we see more of in the horror world as we move more and more into the great streaming wars. I know that HBO Max has Evil Dead Rise in production to be released next year, which sounds quite different. It it almost sounds like they took a script and put Evil Dead in it, and it sounds different from the rest of the franchise. And I, I wonder if these companies that own these streaming services aren't going to take a look at a lot of their existing horror IPs 
and decide to go what is essentially the direct-to-video route, the Hellraiser route, and crank out a couple of cheaper movies with those, those IP names slapped on them. Now, I'm not saying what happened with those direct-to-video Hellraiser sequels is what happened here with Next of Kin. This movie is also produced by Blumhouse, and it is written by Christopher Landon, who wrote 2, 3, and 4 in the Marked Ones, as well as the Happy Death Day movies, um, which were also produced by Blumhouse. I'm just saying it certainly feels like a movie that was based on an, ex- an existing script or an idea that attempts to pepper in some of the elements from the Paranormal Activity franchise. Most of those elements, though, are on the technical side of things, as this movie doesn't tie into continuity at all, from what I could tell. I say from what I could tell because I'm honestly very fuzzy when it comes to the Paranormal Activity franchise's mythology, and as it got along and older in the tooth, I I became very confused with it, honestly. So when the plot of this movie really kicked in and I realized the filmmakers were taking this down a more self-contained road, I was more than okay with it because I really didn't want to jump on Wikipedia to refresh my memory on who like Toby was. From what I could tell, there was no Toby in this movie, but then I did jump on Wikipedia after to look at the cast and I was informed that Toby was in this movie toward the end. So I guess it's connected after all. I'll leave that to the experts though. I don't know. I think someone could watch this movie without remembering a ton of the story from this franchise as for the most part, it's a found footage style and I use found footage very loosely. It's a found footage style horror movie that takes place in an Amish community. Yes, that's right. It's it's Amish horror, baby. We don't get a ton of Amish horror. Maybe it's because they don't watch them uh, and people feel weird about using them as a way to make money. But here we go. I guess the big Amish horror movie is uh, Wes Craven's Deadly Blessing. The Children of the Corn are obviously inspired by the Amish. I think they're their own thing, though. Anyway, big episode for religious horror here. So the first hour or so of this movie is quite slow going. It gets quite repetitive at times. And I know the jump scares get a bad rap. But in a movie like this, you do need some jump scares. A found footage supernatural horror flick needs a few moments to jolt you out of your seat. And this is very light on those moments. I was thinking about it during the movie because about 50 minutes into it, a character gets lowered into a well. And if you're getting lowered into a well in this type of movie, we're getting some jump scares, but it never comes. And I realized that there are maybe only two jolt jump scare moments in the first 60 minutes of this movie. That's one jump scare every 30 minutes. And horror analytics say that it is not going to cut it in a found footage ghost movie. You have to have more of those. I understand being light on them early, but once you get out of that first act and into the second act, you need to have a jump scare like every 10 to 15 minutes at least at least even if it's just like a cat knocking over a glass of water or something anyway the first hour or so is pretty dull and the mystery unfolds much too slowly but once it's all revealed and we get into the third act the home stretch is actually pretty fun it plays out more like a first person survival horror game and i really dug that I've noticed a lot of that lately in horror movies as we start, I think as we start to see more work from directors raised on video games, and I kind of like it. If I was going to pull a comparison for the third act for Paranormal Activity Next of Kin, I would say something like a maybe a Resident Evil 7 or I think like an Outlast. I dug the third act, but it just comes a little too late in the game for me. Also, it must be mentioned, and I will forewarn anyone who is a stickler for explanations in found footage movies as to why the camera is where it is at certain times, or why the characters are still filming, this is not the movie for you. Stay away from Paranormal Activity next of kin. I personally am not really bothered by that kind of stuff, but there were a few moments during this 
where I was going, did they bring like a crane shot for this? Does the gaffer make it out of the movie alive? Was the aerial camera technician possessed as well? What's happening here? This felt like we are leading up to the next Paranormal Activity movie just being shot for IMAX. And I say, let's do it. Uh, Paranormal Activity Next of Kin is not on the honor roll. It has its late era Hellraiser sequel mashup charms, like I mentioned. And it also does have a pretty rollicking third act with some memorable moments. But in the end, it's a pretty lackluster reboot attempt that drags and doesn't do what these movies are designed to do, which is to be scary, even if those scares may be a bit fleeting. All right, that's it for the honor roll. Let's wrap this bad boy up here. Uh, I know it's probably a long one. I don't know. I see what happens after I edit it. Uh, Slumber Party Massacre, the remake, is definitely on there. It may even make my top 10, which is very surprising to me. In the Earth. A fantastic flick. I think it's on Hulu now. I forgot to mention that. That is also on the honor roll. The other movies, The Unholy, Mad Hatter, and Paranormal Activity, Next of Kin, did not make it. So, and I should mention Halloween Kills made my honor roll as well. We released a whole movie, or a whole episode discussing that movie. It's like it's like two hours long. It's longer. I think it's longer than the movie. Excuse my, my burp there. Very classy. If you want early access to these and other bonus episodes from the Midwest Podcast Network, including our Tiny Terror episodes and the Midwest Game Nerds put out stuff called the Side Quests, you can check that out, patreon.com backslash midwestpodnet. You can, I mean, you can uh, chuck a buck at us and get a ton of content early and yeah, for only a dollar. You can also give us more money if you are so inclined. I'm going to be back next time on the honor roll. I don't know what I'm going to be watching. I've been a little bit slower lately. I've had some stuff going on, but I want to dive back into things. So thank you seriously, everybody, for listening. I will see you next time.